0: On May 13th, 2015, Savas Savopoulos, his wife Amy, their 10-year-old son Philip, and their housekeeper Vera Figueroa were held for 19 hours in their home in Washington, D.C. DNA found on pizza crust that was left inside the home led police to arrest one man, Darren Wendt. He's pled not guilty to all charges against him. He's currently in jail and his trial is set for September 2018. Yenia. It's the Greek word for family. And by all accounts to the outside world, to D.C., and to the nation who became captivated by this story, the Savopoulos family looked like they had it all. They were wealthy, traveled extensively. They were the perfect photo op. Three gorgeous kids and two beautiful young parents. But like many families, the actual story is more complex and contradictory than that. Roxanne Roberts from the Washington Post probably did the most research on the Savopoulos family. Roxanne has been a longtime style writer for The Post. She's slender with dark hair. And for years, she wrote for The Reliable Source, which was all about the who's who of D.C. society. And Roxanne is sophisticated, like a person who would mesh well in high society. Some of Roxanne's first coverage of the family started at the funeral of the Savopolises. It's one of the first places we see the complexities of the family come to light. And Roxanne told us that from the moment she went to the funeral, things seemed off with the family.
1: Given the profile of these murders, I was assigned to the funeral. I had been covering it for about a month, and I'd written stories. And I knew a lot of players, even though I didn't know the Savopolis's. And we were not allowed in the funeral, and that's fine. I understood that. So all the press was located across basically the entrance to the church. Okay. And so we wrote and described about the scene, which was, you know, unbearably sad. It was just to watch three hearses come up. I mean, you know, it was just... And the flowers. The whole thing was just devastating, even to watch, and I didn't know them. But afterward, I positioned myself on the public sidewalk, which is okay, and I approach people as I normally do. And I've been doing this a long time, so I wasn't afraid... But I also understand that people are incredibly sad. And I would say to people, I'm Roxanne Roberts, I'm with the Washington Post. Can you tell me a little bit about the service? And I found people who actually shoved me out of the way. There was a guy who was with the family that came over and started to threaten me. And I basically said, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm allowed to be here. I'm allowed to be on the public sidewalk. Yeah. The notion, I think that this concept of the fact that we were asking any questions of any kind was some massive violation. And I didn't require anyone to answer. And I trust me, I was really polite. I understood this was a horrible day for these people. Sure. And what I was hoping to get was something along the lines of we had a chance to talk about. Philip, or we had a chance to talk about what Amy was like as a mother or, you know, what they were like as a family. But what I got was so, such a wall that I thought it went beyond grief to something that made me wonder, what what's up, you know, just what's up with it? There's a lot, this whole case has so much of what's what's up with that? Because, you know, the press, contrary to what a lot of people like to think We're human beings, too. We've had people die. We've had oral things happen in our lives. We get what it's like. Our job is to try to capture any given moment or capture people or personalities or circumstances. And I knew how tough it was for all these people. And yet there was just some slightly weird vibe that I hadn't encountered in many other funerals, including funerals of people who had died of suicide or you know, in other ways. So it was just, I've done this before many times. This one was different.
0: Even though Roxanne found the funeral to be unusual, she did find out a lot about how Savas and Amy and the family lived their lifestyle. It appeared like Savas and Amy had a grand lifestyle, including living in one of DC's most expensive neighborhoods and driving expensive cars, including Porsches, Range Rovers, and a $700,000 mausoleum. But Roxanne says that opulent lifestyle was kind of surprising, considering Savas wasn't raised with money. And she told us that American ironworks didn't
1: support the lifestyle they lived. These are the the behind-the-scenes signs that you're wealthy, you're sophisticated, you're a a kind of gentleman connoisseur. Mm -hmm. Um, And given the fact that he wasn't traditionally, uh, growing up he wasn't, um, the business didn't lend itself to that kind of thing. He he didn't have that traditional pedigree. Um, I thought that was an interesting insight into the things he aspired to.
0: We were curious about Savas' background and the business as well. Savas Philip Savopoulos was born in Cheverly, Maryland on September 25th, 1968. His parents, Philip and Gail Savopoulos, were from the DC area, and Savas had two half-sisters. He was the only son of Philip and Gail, a big deal in a Greek family. And from the time that he was in high school, he was being groomed by his father to take over the family business. The family business was American Ironworks. According to the Washington Post and American Ironworks website, Savas succeeded his father as president of AIW, which has been involved in some of the D.C. region's most high-profile construction projects. They helped rebuild the Pentagon after September 11th, provided steel for Nationals Baseball Stadium, and helped construct D.C. City Center, a downtown high-end shopping region. On their website, AIW describes itself as their specialties are extremely complex, large-scale construction. AIW's core product offerings include supplemental support systems, custom elements, staircases, railings, and window frames. Just like Roxanne Roberts, We reached out to dozens of friends and family members of the Sabopolises, and we never heard back. We reached out to Savas' father and mother, but no response. Other friends and family declined to be interviewed or wanted to talk, but not on record. Many people I talked to off the record told me that Savas and AIW were involved with several litigations and lawsuits. When I did a Google search, I didn't find several, but I did find one, caselaw.finelaw.com. Ross versus American Ironworks. Appellant, the person filing the lawsuit, was Richard T. Ross against his co-partner, appellee, the person the lawsuit is against, Philip Savopoulos, on August 27, 2001. Philip is Savas' father, and he's still alive, lives with his wife, Gail, who's Savas' mother, in Maryland. After Savas' death in 2015, Philip had to step back in and start running AIW again. The case was settled on October 30, 2003. And the court ruled that Richard T. Ross was entitled to additional share money, but that there was no criminal intent. The cost was to be paid one half by the appellant and one half by the appellee. I reached out to Richard Ross to see if he would discuss the litigation and how he was connected with the Savopoulos family. Richard agreed. He told me he'd been business partners with Phil Savopoulos for 20 years. They started AIW together, and he'd seen Savas grow up. Richard resides in D.C., He's tall, slender, and married to his vivacious wife, Mary. He spent years and years in the iron and construction business. And Richard told me that Phil adored his son, Savas. Tell me about, because obviously you you saw Savas grow up. Mm -hmm. What was the relationship like between Phil and Savas?
2: Oh, that's his, that's his... um, Golden child, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what Phil brought to the world, Savas.
0: Richard goes on to describe his relationship with Phil and what Phil was like in business. While Richard says that Phil could be a nice guy, he didn't have the same feelings towards Savas.
2: Phil had a pleasant nature. You know, he could be really a nice guy. Mm. Not a nice guy, but he could be pleasant to be around. Sure. And if, you, if there was some reason to have a—if he could gain something, you know, it was— You didn't necessarily feel like you were going to be taken advantage of. Gotcha. Savos, on the other hand, he was more of a cutthroat uh, type of... Person. Yeah.
0: Richard goes on to give me an example of Savas being cutthroat. Richard tells me that there was a man named Peter, who was good friends with Phil and worked at AIW for many years. But when Savas took over AIW, he wanted that to change.
2: Peter and Phil were friends. And Peter wasn't, he didn't do much. He was like a messenger, ran errands. uh, I mean, he wasn't vital for the company. Right. Savas took over. Okay. And fired Peter. Wow.
0: After how many years? Oh,
2: a lot of years. I mean, Peter was with us for like close to the beginning, you know, and Phil got pissed off and made him hire him back.
0: During the 90s, while Richard and Phil were building their iron business, they made good money, Richard told me. 200000 sometimes $300,000 a year. But not millions, according to Richard. How much money, can you give us an idea of what kind of money you guys were making? I mean, were you making a substantial we, amount of money? Well,
2: we were making uh, pretty good money. Yeah, I mean, uh, we were probably making, now this is in... 1990s or... You know. You know. I mean, we brought home each of us, uh, you know, two to three hundred thousand dollars a year. We were doing well.
0: Okay, yeah, that I would, I would think that's really well. Mm-hmm.
2: But there's times when we sucked it up and didn't take a lot of money out of the business because uh, the economy
0: sure ebbs and flows. Yeah,
2: I mean, you you like in '92, I mean the building business sucked. It was really bad. Hmm. We had the Orioles stadium that kept us busy during that downturn.
0: Then there came a time when Richard says Phil wanted Savas to take over the business. And that's when things went south between Richard and Phil. Richard says he was ousted from AIW and the lawsuits started.
2: There came a time when his son was getting older uh, and my son was getting older. Ah. So, uh, he wanted to take control of the company. Now, I made a critical business mistake. There was a time when he asked, "Was our chief um, field guy?" He ran the field. Okay. Very critical part of the business. That's where you make or lose money.
0: Okay. In field,
2: you can control the shop work. You can get, you know, what that's going to cost you. You know, that you can keep them working, keep the flow going, you can keep that efficient. The field, you know, you. You're out there and you don't know necessarily what they're doing. You know, you got 10 right. jobs around and you don't know whether they're showing up on time or how
0: much work good. is getting yeah. done. Yeah. Sure. okay. I so had one
2: field guy that uh, was is pretty critical. That was Norman. And Norman, uh, it came a time Phil said, hey, I you know, Norman's busting his butt and really doing a hell of a job. I think we ought to give him, you know, five percent of the company. And I said, sure, we can give him five percent of the company. I don't mind that, but uh, not stock. We'll give him well. In any event, I didn't follow through to make sure that that's the way it was set up. Was set up. So there was actually never anything in writing, other than tax records, which showed that he had a five percent ownership. So there came a time when he said, "We're having the stockholders' meeting," and. We're going to elect the board, and I have 55% because Norman's going to vote with me, and you're going to be out. So I got fired Uh, out of the company that I started. Started.
0: How many years in was that? 20 years. So Richard was out, and Savas took over American Iron Works. A second person was also willing to talk, a former friend of the family. This person asked to not be on the podcast and did not want their name mentioned. The friend and I exchanged emails about what Savas and the family were like, And the former friend says that he knew the family extremely well, both Phil and Savas. Here's what the friend has to say on Savas as a person. Quote, Savas was an arrogant kid and continued to be that way. And I asked about Savas' behavior. Was it a direct reflection of how he was raised? This is the former friend's quote on Phil. What I can say, Phil was like a split personality. On one hand, he was a philanthropist. He did a lot of good things that I know firsthand, and nobody can take that away from Phil. On the other hand, he terminated friendships with people that were devoted to him. This former friend did disagree with Richard when it came to money. The friend says that Savas and Phil did make a lot of money in the iron business and made enough money to support their lifestyle. Quote, yes, Phil is very good in making money. After Richard left, Phil made tremendous progress. When Savas came into the business, American Ironworks was a success. I don't know of his contributions, but Phil was and is a significant person in business. Okay, so questions still remain. How much was Savas really worth? What did American Ironworks bring in? There's conflicting reports. But Roxanne Roberts says
1: this. Savas wasn't shy about flaunting money. He got into what I call sort of the standard rich guy stuff. Fancy cars. Short cars. And then he also got into, which I always think is sort of, you know, the classic, I'm a classy guy syndrome, which was wines. He got into very expensive wines, and belonged to, um, he went to a couple wine charity dinners, but he also was admitted into a club of very, very high-end collectors here in Washington. And in order to be part of that club, you also had to, you went, you tasted, um, but you also had to then bring some very, very expensive bottles and vintages to be part of it. It was, you know, this is just sort of the, you know, it's the equivalent of having, you know, a Lamborghini or having the very expensive watches.
0: Savas was a member of one of D.C.'s most elite clubs, the University Club. Typically, members of the University Club are over the age of 35 and pay about $3,400 annually. That's on top of a $5,000 initiation fee and then several hundred dollars a month in other food and beverage fees. Some notable past and current club members include President Richard Nixon and former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld.
1: Savas belonged to the University Club. And so I called the University Club and said, can you tell me a little bit about, can you verify this Nobody wanted to verify anything. He had been scheduled. What I did find out from someone who connected me, who connected me, who connected me to somebody, you know, I, you know, all the back channels of mm. this kind of thing, is that, you know, he was perfectly, you know, he was young. He wasn't yeah, at yeah, you know, so He was young. young. He wasn't a big presence. He was one of the guys there. What he was, the one thing that stood out for a lot of people was that, He had wanted to teach a course, or did teach a course, about this oriental martial arts that he was so devoted to. That was not just an actual sport, but was also sort of a lifestyle and sort of a way of life. And that was viewed, I think, with a certain kind of tolerance skepticism.
0: Mm.
1: Like he was really into this.
0: At the time of his death, according to Savas' obituary, he was the current headmaster of a traditional style of Japanese swordmanship dating back to the mid-1800s and had just opened a center. That center was about 2,000 square feet of mat space, two libraries, a kitchen, sleeping quarters, and other amenities where live-in students could excel in their pursuit of martial arts. And it opened in Chantilly, Virginia.
1: And, and we discovered that immediately because on the weekend after he died, he was about to open this studio— I mean, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was the connection, why was it in Chantilly? Why was it what was it doing out there? And I was able to contact somebody who was scheduled to teach. And when I finally got him on the phone, he's like, How dare you talk to us about this? You know, and like and and I'm gonna sue you if you call me again. There was so much unusual behavior. We wondered is there a money connection that we're missing somehow? Is there the more we found out about it, does this martial arts studio have something to do with his business or money with his business? And you know, what's with that? You know, there's there's so many more questions that there are answers
0: martial arts studio was located in chantilly virginia which is a suburb of dc and it's located in fairfax county one of the wealthiest counties in the u.s when you google martial arts studios there are dozens in the area and a lot of families out there it seems like a good location for a martial arts studio and really not all that strange it would have been about 25 miles from sabas's home and as far as we know the center never opened and remains
1: closed to this day
0: I asked Roxanne if she felt that the resistance from the Savopoulos
1: family was maybe because they had money. I've been covering very wealthy people for three decades, gotten to know their lives, their people, their lifestyles, their families. This was different. Um, It wasn't about the money they had. It was a sense that to ask any questions was somehow forbidden and that anyone who is asking questions should be treated with hostility. And I just found that really odd. Most of the time when anyone dies, regardless of their socioeconomic status, their friends and family are really eager to talk about what they're like as a person, the life they led, the contributions they gave to the world, Um, especially a lot of people who have money because, They've had plenty of opportunities to take that and do some good in the world. So those services and funerals are usually about the lives that they led, even if the lives were cut short. This was a particularly tragic and shocking murders, but that doesn't change the fact that they lived productive lives. Um, that they had a lot of very sweet moments, and the fact that none of that was considered to be, were sharing, was unusual.
0: The other person who would have known Savas very well and the Savopoulos family was Nellie Gutierrez. She was the Savopoulos' family housekeeper for 20 years. She's petite with shoulder-length hair, often in designer clothes, and drives a cherry red Mercedes. She has her own housekeeping business in the suburbs of D.C., and she appears to be doing very well. When Nellie started with the family 20 years ago, she was full-time, taking care of Savas and Amy's children, cleaning. But at the time of their deaths, Nellie's role with the family had changed. It was more on a need basis. Some weeks, Nellie would only be at the house two days a week. And the day of Savas and the family's murder, Nellie didn't go to the home at all because she'd been working at the dojo studio to get it ready for the grand opening. When we interviewed Nellie, she had good things to say about the Savopolis family, for the most part. But she also really just wanted to talk about her friend Vera. Vera was the other housekeeper who was also murdered with the family. And Nellie got Vera the job with the Savopolises, and she'd grown very close to her.
3: All this is like a nightmare for me.
0: So tell me what they were like as people. Amy and Savas and Philip and the girls. What was the family like? Very happy
3: family. They enjoy life. They always travel together for vacation, and you know, very happy family.
0: And you told me when we talked on the phone, they were always very good to you.
3: Yeah, very nice people. I cannot complain. Mm-mm. That's the reason why I stay with them for twenty years because they're very nice. They treat me very well. Emmy, very sweet, very nice lady. I mean that's the reason why I miss them so much.
0: Nellie answered all of our questions, but she really wanted to talk about her friend Vera. And your friend Vera mm-hmm. ended up coming to work for the family um, through you,
3: right? Yes. After she Vera got married, so she asked me that she needed a better job. So that's when I talked to Emmy about Vera. And Emmy said, Yeah, that's fine. I don't care if she's, if her English is not good. So, but you can help me and I can, you know, make her release and you can help me out with the, you know. Um, and Vera, she never had any problem with Emmy because she was so responsible. She was, you know, on time and she was so good and very honest person.
0: Nelly was extremely emotional throughout our interview as she recalled what her friend Vera was like. I know Vera was a good friend of yours, and you obviously are, you know, just you can tell how connected you were with Vera. Mm. What was Vera like? Was she? I know she was working really hard for her family, and mm. what made you and Vera so close? Maybe because
3: I helped her a lot when she came to this country. Mm. And because she always, since she was so honest person, so if she told me something, I always talk to her, but I never tell, you know, anybody else about. So, you know, she enjoyed life also. She was very happy about remarry again, and her dream was to retire and go back to El Salvador and stay there and, you know...
2: Her dream never
0: came true. Mm. <laughs> Nelly has wonderful memories, but oddly enough, she's been cut off from Vera's family entirely and the Savopolis family. She's had no contact and they won't return her phone calls. The hardest part, I think, in this, the part that I really, my heart broke for you is, you said that you have not really heard from Sabas, from, have you heard from the girls or, you know, Sabas' family, and you've sort of been cut off, right, in some way?
3: Hmm. Yeah, maybe, because, you know, I understand maybe they don't, (laughs) I mean, if I don't feel good at this point, I don't have an idea what they've gone through also because, you know, that's like, you know, the girls, they're without their brother and,
4: you right. know, their parents. So right.
3: it's very difficult. And also for Sava's parents and Amy's parents, is it's hard. Yeah. And, you know, it's been very hard for me, maybe because I have a, like, routine going over every week and be with them twice a week. So maybe that's why I'm missing them a lot. I don't know. Right. I, I I don't understand because sometimes my friend, they say, well, but they're not your family. But I don't understand why I felt this way.
0: I asked Nelly about the rumors that Savas was difficult in business. Here's what she had to say.
3: I don't know. I mean, It's normal when people are very neat and picky about their business because that's the only way people can be, you know...
0: So successful.
3: Yes. But in my point, that's why I stayed with the family for so many years because they were so good to me.
0: Right.
3: You know, I heard that they're not good, but for me, they were my best. No, I I, I don't know. They might have issues with them in the past. For me, that was, you know... No problem.
0: While Savas and his father Phil seemed to have many sides, the one person people agreed upon was Amy. Amy Claire Martin Savopoulos was 47 years old when she died. She was devoted to her family and charitable efforts for the less fortunate. Amy was born in Brighton, Mass on April 8th, 1968 and was raised in a military family with her younger brother, John. She was a wife, mother, daughter, sister, friend, neighbor, as well as very engaged in the community. She hosted evenings of awareness, fundraisers, and the Children's National Medical Center's safe concussion outcome recovery and education had become her passion before she died. Here's Roxana Roberts on what she discovered about
1: Amy. From what, what I could tell, she was the person that we could get the fullest picture of. Mm. They were high school sweethearts. He was interested in her, but they didn't really become a couple until late college or after college, near the end of their college year. And then, you know, they got married and had what a lot of people would consider just sort of this kind of perfect life. They had two little girls, and uh, based on, if you were to backtrack through her postings, they um, did all the, they did the fancy private schools, and they did a lot of trips, and by the time all of this was going on, they were, you know, young women who seemed to be you know, privileged young women, a trip to Paris here, a trip to Florida here, we went here, we do this, and and lots of the kind of love and kind of support that you'd see from sort of the golden family, you know, that Amy did not work. And I couldn't tell that she had a lot of interests outside of the family. The one thing she got very, very interested in was the issue of childhood concussions. Right. Both her daughters had suffered from them in their various sports activities. And she kind of became the go-to mom on that issue. She was very interested in that subject and became sort of known as the person that uh, she studied it. She posted about it. I think she was involved with an organization. But that was sort of, that's the thing that she got really passionate about. But again, that was another offshoot of her sort of golden momness. Right. You know, the perfect mom.
0: We reached out to Amy's hairdresser, the consignment store where she had sold clothes and been friends with the owner for years, neighbors, members of the church, but no one else went on record. Amy and Savas had three children, Katerina, Abigail, and little Philip, who was killed. Both Katerina and Abigail were away at high school at the time of the murders in private boarding schools. Abigail was attending Mercersburg Academy in Pennsylvania, and Katerina was a junior at the Petty School in New Jersey. The girls are both beautiful. Abigail has long, dark hair, and Katerina has blonde hair. Katerina appears to be the most active on social media. She's currently attending Bates College in Maine, and in September of 2016, Kat started a GoFundMe to raise money for a therapy dog to cope with her epilepsy and PTSD. It was up for a couple of days and then quickly taken down. But not before news
4: outlets had a
0: chance to pick it
4: up. A request for help tonight from one of the daughters of the Savopoulises. The couple killed along with their son and housekeeper in their DC mansion. Katerina Savopoulis is trying to raise money for a service dog. This is the dog here. She set up a GoFundMe page to raise $20,000 to pay for training and raising the dog plus other costs. Katerina tells me she's suffered from multiple concussions, has epilepsy and recurring seizures. In addition to PTSD and depression. On the page, she says, quote, I fear for my own personal safety. I am often paranoid, scared, and overly anxious. Even the smallest things can trigger a panic attack. For months, I have been plagued by panic attacks, nightmares, flashbacks, and suicidal thoughts. Having a service dog trained in both seizure warning and PTSD support would allow me to be less afraid. Bandit, is the name, will interrupt nightmares and flashbacks gently bringing me back to reality. He will provide comfort, especially during panic attacks and periods of depression.
0: Many people found the GoFundMe to be odd, considering the family supposedly had a lot of money. Kat still posts pictures of Bandit, along with messages to her late parents and brother. But little Philip had become the priority. Philip was named after his grandfather, Philip. He was the only boy to Amy and Savis, and the only grandson a big deal in a Greek family. Little Philip was also known as Flip by his friends, and he was born in Silver Spring, Maryland on March 1st, 2005. He was attending the very elite St. Albans All Boys School, and tuition is around $35,000 a year for day students. He was
1: adored. The one thing that, that I thought was unusual, and because I've never been rich enough to be in the position to do this. I thought it was odd to the degree that the family got deeply, deeply into Phillips car racing. Mm. You know, he had a coach, they spent a fortune, they traveled. I don't know how, if anything, that's different than if he were an athlete of some other kind or uh, he was involved, he had a horse if he was involved with a horse or any other kind of sport if he was a competitive. But it was clear that once the girls had gone off to boarding school, Philip, as the golden child, the prince, you know, he was, remember, this is a Greek family. One thing everybody explained to me is that he's born, and I think, and I'm not sure it's in my story, but I'm pretty sure that he was even called the prince.
0: Roxanne goes on to tell us that Philip's hobby of racing also had the family inviting into their home some other characters of this story.
1: It, It seemed... Some of these connections seem to be slightly unusual. I, I, I don't. I know most of the people I know that have chauffeurs um, hire them through recommendations by other families. If you're going to hire a nanny or a chauffeur or a housekeeper, that tends to come from services that cater to sort of the gilded class here. And I just thought it was interesting. I thought how odd that he would have entrusted such a sensitive role uh, and such an intimate role Mm. to somebody that he barely knew. Uh, And and that could have been perfectly innocent and just a, a, a mistake in his life. And I know that the driver has always contended that this was, he had nothing to do with this in any way, in any form. So, but I know there was a lot of speculation about that.
0: There's the name Jordan Wallace again. Jordan had come into the family's lives about seven months before the murders. And Jordan had met Savas and little Philip at the Autobahn Indoor Speedway in events in Baltimore, Maryland. He'd been working for the family for about four months before the murders as Savas's driver and courier. Roxanne believes we might never know who the Savopoulos family really is.
1: I think that it's likely that it's one of those situations where people only saw little pieces of them, you know, Mm -hmm. little snapshots, and that very few people had all the pieces of a puzzle to put together.
0: The other question we wanted to get to the bottom of was the mafia connection. There was so much speculation made of if Savas and the family were involved in the mafia, if they dealt exclusively in cash. We asked everyone about this, from Richard, the former business partner, to the anonymous friend, to Nellie, Here's what Richard's take was on the so-called mafia connection. Um, the other big rumor that's always floated around that family is that there was some sort of mafia connection or Greek mafia connection. Is that true uh, of the iron I, I never
2: saw that. And, and I was around a lot of Phil's uh, friends and never got an inkling uh, of that.
0: Here's Nelly Gutierrez, the former maid of the Savopoulos family. What about, you know, there's been a lot made of that Sabas had a lot of cash dealings and a lot of cash in the house. Did you ever witness that? Did you ever see a lot of money there?
3: No. No. Mm -mm.
0: That's what, you know, the media
3: and all that they came across with packages with money, but I never opened a package with cash or came across with a lot of cash. No.
0: And the former friend of the family, here's their quote. I don't believe that Phil will associate with that kind of crowd. And on Savas, I have no way of knowing. For former friends and associates of the Savopoulos family, the murders still haunt them. Richard told us that about a year before Savas' death, he started having a premonition.
2: A year or a year and a half before that, I started having these premonitions that something was going to happen to Savas.
0: Oh, get out. Like what?
2: Well, I said, somebody's gonna hurt him. And.
0: Would you have like a dream? Or it was just like you'd be daydreaming and there would be like an image? How did that. Yeah.
2: yeah. It was like, uh, you know, you'd be driving down a road and some thoughts come to your head. And it's like, holy cow. Uh, you know. And it was a revenge thing.
3: Every, you know, every single day, I dream about. Going in the backyard and try to look over the window and see Amy and Vera and try to call 911 and try to save them. I always think about, oh, maybe if I came that day and wild and hide in the closet or maybe be like, try to hide myself and, and try to save them. But that's not true. And especially this little boy because you know he was so happy and, uh, and I don't I mean it's it's very difficult you know I went through such a hard time
0: so far coming up on the next episode of the Mansion murders this is the question I have been wanting to ask you forever
3: Darren is not capable of murder. That's something that he would never do.
1: There is no way that the mere fact there is DNA on some piece of food is the same as saying you were present at a location.
0: Um, and there's been a lot of talk around the $40,000. But there's also been some debate if, in fact, that was all that was taken from the house. Is forty grand all that was... Oh, I've
3: heard there was a lot more. I've heard that there was
2: 100000 delivered to that house.
0: The police came out early and said that there were multiple suspects in this case. Do you believe that? Yes. What leads you to believe that that is true? Thank you for listening to The Mansion Murders, a Fox 5 true crime podcast. And a big thanks to our team for putting this episode together. Ronnie McRae, shooter and editor. Josh Danzig, writer. Judith Ayers, researcher. Roxanne Roberts from The Washington Post, Nelly Gutierrez, Richard Ross, and The Anonymous Friend. Want more mansion murders? See a video recap of what went into this episode. You can visit our YouTube page or check out that video at fox5dc.com. I'm Sarah Fraser. We'll see you next week.